Amen. Well, this morning, if you've got Bibles, we are back in Luke chapter 5. It's been a little bit of a break as we've been celebrating the holiday season, Uh, but this week we decided we we really need as many weeks as we can at the pace we're going if we're ever going to make it through uh, Luke. We're in Luke chapter 5, so uh, we're back at it this week in the middle of Luke chapter 5. And uh, if you've been with us before, as we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, you'll remember where we left off was Jesus in the region of Galilee. We've been looking at those early days of Jesus's ministry as the crowds were beginning to build and his teaching was spreading throughout the region of Galilee. We specifically looked at a few places where Jesus had been doing that ministry. He had been in Nazareth, his hometown, as you might remember. And in that hometown, his friends and family became frustrated as Jesus refused to do miracles there that he had done in places like Capernaum. His hometown got so frustrated with him that they drove him out of the city and at one point attempted to throw him off of a cliff, their frustration for not getting what they felt they deserved from Jesus. We saw Jesus also doing many miracles in Capernaum there within Galilee. And we saw how those crowds continue to build, but it was surprising how few of them actually seemed to be listening to what Jesus was saying. Instead, the crowds began to mob Jesus, to press hard against him, constantly coming to him, but seeming to have their attention ever on the miracles that he was doing and rarely on the things he was actually saying. Luke, as we looked at, recorded two specific healings during this time. One of those was a man who was unclean with leprosy. Jesus had made him clean and put him back into that position of worship in the community. And just after that, we come across the story of that crowd within a home, so crowded that the friends with their paralyzed friend could not bring him in through the door or the windows, but instead going up to the roof, they lowered him down into the middle of the room before Jesus. All of the stories had been about the crowds and the miracles, the crowds coming to see the healings. But Jesus' first words to that lame man are surprising. Jesus says to him, not get up and walk or be healed, but he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Jesus went on to heal him. He did take up his mat and walk, but it hints us in that as the crowds are coming for more and more miracles, Jesus has on his mind more than just those healings. He has come so that he might call disciples, that he might preach forgiveness for sins But as these stories are beginning to accumulate, few are those who seem to be listening to that message, to that word that Jesus is speaking. We have seen some of those first disciples. We'll get another one today as Jesus has been calling them. The first we encountered in Luke's gospel was the calling of Peter. We saw Jesus call Peter as Peter was there mending his nets, having spent the night fishing with his companions. And Jesus, having given Peter that miraculous catch of fish, unlike the crowds who wanted more and more, Peter fell on his face before Jesus and declared, I'm unworthy, depart from me. Instead of going, Jesus called Peter to get up and follow. Peter, seeming to be one of those few individuals willing to hear and see and understand all that Jesus was not only doing, but saying. Well, we're going to get another one of those stories today, another disciple that Jesus will call, and another chance to compare how this disciple is different from those crowds, that group around Jesus. And interestingly enough, at the center of this calling of another disciple is still that question of sin and forgiveness, which Jesus has been bringing up even amongst the crowds. A short passage for today, just a few verses, but if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 5, I'll be reading beginning in verse 27. Jesus calls Levi, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. 
After this, he went out, this is Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclined at table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. Luke chapter 5, the calling of Levi. You notice that that story begins with the simple phrase, after this, or you could translate it, after these things. That is, Luke keeps us in this context, this setting of Galilee and Jesus' ministry amongst the crowds. And it's in that setting, perhaps even that specific place of Capernaum, that we get introduced to this second story of Jesus calling a disciple. What Luke records is that Jesus saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth. Jesus, most likely still in that town of Capernaum, it makes sense for him to have run into somebody like Levi. Capernaum, if you've seen a map or look at one at the back of your Bibles, Capernaum sits just on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum sat also along one of the major trade routes that would have gone from the Mediterranean Sea through Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee and up into Damascus, what is today Syria. That trade route would have brought people from the Mediterranean further inland or from inland to the Mediterranean and on to the rest of Europe. And so it is, this became an important trade city, Capernaum, not a large city, but strategically located on that path. It also sits at the intersection of two territories. If you remember our conversations about Herod and all of the Herods that came after Herod the Great, upon Herod the Great's death, the Herod that we spent time talking about this Christmas season, Herod passed his kingdom on to three of his sons, what is called the Tetrarchy. We have Herod Archelaus, who took over Judea and Jerusalem. Herod Antipas, who took over this region of Galilee, where Jesus has been teaching, as well as Perea, which is just across the Jordan River near the Dead Sea. And the third son, Herod Philip, who ruled the land to the north. This town of Capernaum set just at the borderline between Herod Antipas' kingdom and Herod Philip's kingdom. And so, on that important trade route, sitting between these two territories, it becomes an ideal place for taxes to be collected as goods are being moved in and out of these two territories. You can imagine something like we have in port cities today, where goods are being shipped in and tariffs are being charged, taxes, before they make their way into a new nation. And so it is Levi is sitting, probably along this road, in one of these tax booths, He is responsible for taxing that population of Capernaum, but also collecting those taxes of goods coming in and out of Herod Antipas' territory. Tax collectors like Levi in the first century were despised by the Jewish population, and particularly by those pious Jews who wanted and prayed and worked for Israel's full independence. Most of them questioned the legitimacy of Herod's kingdom, of Herod the Great, and certainly of those sons. Herod Archelaus in the south by this time had already been deposed and Rome had taken over rule of Judea and Jerusalem. And so many of the Jews under that pressure were feeling a kind of surge of independence, a desire to rule themselves. 
But yet you have tax collectors like Levi who set charging taxes which they all know will inevitably make their way into the coffers of Rome and the empire. They made these tax collectors accomplices of Rome, participants in that occupying Roman force. And the way that taxes worked in the ancient world often meant that these tax collectors charged exorbitant amounts of taxes. The Romans didn't collect their own taxes. They hired out companies or locals who would administer the collection. And though they were expected to charge an excess so that they could profit off their collection, often these tax collectors charged exorbitant amounts of money and profited great wealth off of collecting the taxes for Rome. You might remember earlier in Luke's gospel when John the Baptist was in the wilderness baptizing people who were coming and repenting of sins. Many of those who were coming were tax collectors. And as they asked John the Baptist, how now should we live after this repentance? One of the specific points John had made was tax collectors no longer collect more taxes than are actually due. This practice of charging these exorbitant rates, the accomplice role that they played in Roman rule and occupation, made individuals like Levi, tax collectors like Levi, despised by those who lived in places like Galilee and who considered themselves pious Jews. And so it is Levi is sitting there at Capernaum along this road collecting taxes. And as we'll see in a moment, the Pharisees have this very reaction to him. Tax collectors and sinners is the group that they lump him into, despised by those around them. But for all of the population's irritation with tax collectors, Luke tells us that Jesus going out saw Levi and called him to become a disciple. The idea of Jesus seeing Levi is actually a lot stronger in the Greek than it is in English. You could translate it something like Jesus beheld him or perceived him. It's a kind of developing theme that Luke has been recording, that Jesus sees into the hearts and thoughts of individuals, that he knows the complaints and the offense that is stirring within the crowd opposed to him. Even here, you notice that the Pharisees and scribes complained to Jesus' disciples, but Jesus answered them, knowing what they're thinking and is in their hearts. Likewise, he perceives and beholds something of Levi, That is, Jesus saw something in Levi, something beyond his role as a tax collector that led him to call him to become one of the first disciples. Levi, sitting there in Capernaum, no doubt knew about Jesus. Again, Capernaum was not a huge town. He was responsible for collecting taxes, so he probably knew all of the people around. And he had certainly heard word of the miracles Jesus was doing, the crowds that were forming, Perhaps even from some distance, Levi had been listening and watching, his heart being prepared even for this moment of Jesus' calling. It's interesting also that Jesus, these two first disciples he's called, Peter and Levi, has called them both while they've been at work. Peter was cleaning fishing nets, having just finished spending the night out fishing. Levi, Luke specifically tells us, is sitting there at his tax booth. Isn't it interesting that these disciples of Jesus are not called in some sacred religious service? They're not called in some set-apart wilderness revival event. But there they said about their work, their jobs, their lives, and it's in the midst of that place that Jesus' word comes to them, follow me. And like Peter, Luke tells us that Levi immediately got up from his booth and began to follow Jesus. 
That's another pattern that's beginning to form with these disciples. They walk away from their lives to follow Jesus. Peter walks away from nets and boats and remember that miraculous catch of fish that I'm not sure they ever cashed in on. He walks away from it. Levi walks away from his collecting booth. It almost, the way Luke records it, puts in our mind the image of the taxes still laying out on the table as he walks away from them. Here's something to pay close attention to as Jesus is calling these disciples. When Jesus calls someone to follow him, it always means a reorienting of their entire life. To follow Jesus is not just to add on some interesting new philosophy. It's not just to pick up a New Year's resolution and decide to live a little bit differently in the days ahead. But instead, for all of these disciples, it is a walking away from one life to take up an entirely new life. Jesus' call is not just some affirmation of who we are, the life we've been trying to build. It's not some special self-esteem that builds up our confidence in our name. It's not some hug and a bit of encouragement from a close friend. Jesus' call is not just a little help when we've hit a rough patch in life. It's a call to live for something completely and radically different than what we have been living for before. Levi walks away from tax collecting. It seems that Levi must have had still some of his same possessions, because after all, his story continues by him welcoming other tax collectors into his home and throwing a great feast. But even here, you sense a kind of change. Levi has walked away from his life, perhaps his career, and even his possessions are now being used differently. His possessions are reoriented, his vocation, his identity. Everything is suddenly at use for Jesus' calling. He now dedicates himself to following Jesus. When Jesus calls us, he does not always ask us to give up a job, to give up possessions, to move and follow him around the countryside. But when he calls us, he absolutely always asks us to take all things in our life and subordinate them to him to give them to him, and to make them available now to his use, not just our own. We may keep the same job, but we work it differently. We now work this job as if working and serving Christ. We may keep our bank accounts and the possessions in our home, but those are no longer our possessions, but now Christ's. We listen for his call and how he will lead us to use these things next. And notice This is the very thing that throughout Luke's gospel, the crowds have been unwilling to do. They mob Jesus to see miracles and healings. They crowd houses and fill up every door and window wanting to be near him. They come to hear every word that Jesus is speaking. But very, very few of them hear his call and walk away living different lives. They come to accumulate what they think Jesus offers them. But few of them turn around and offer Christ all that they possess in return, abandoning their own pursuits and entrusting themselves and all they own to him. I wonder for us reading this passage, if we could look at our own lives and notice evidence of that kind of discipleship taking place. Do your life and your possessions bear the mark of belonging to Jesus? The risk is That everything, even though you've accepted Christ, you still imagine is yours. That you show up to get a few blessings from time to time. 
Jesus offers you some bits of motivation and encouragement to keep you pressing on with the life you're living. Sure, perhaps you're generous and charitable when needed, but that's not what it looks like to become a disciple of Jesus. To hear his call and to follow means every part of your life becomes his, handed over to him, to his call. The image we get of this that I think is so profound in this story is Levi suddenly having decided to follow Jesus, inviting all of his co-workers, the tax collectors and sinners of Capernaum over to his house for a giant feast because he desires to introduce them to Jesus. Our first image of Levi is him at his tax booth collecting taxes. But the immediate image after Levi has followed Jesus is now him in his home. He has been characterized by this work of taking from what other people have for his own wealth and for Roman taxes. But now, having decided to follow Jesus, the image is of him opening his home and funding and putting on this feast, this dinner, in order that others might meet Jesus through him. Let me offer you a little bit of a quick side note from, I think, one of the things you could take away. If you're looking for the absolute most practical bit of application from today's passage, this might be the point to take away. If you're unsure what it looks like for your life and your possessions to be used for Jesus, could I suggest you start off by inviting people over for dinner? I don't think this is a bad image for what it might look like. It's surprising to me how often this actually happens in Scripture. Think of all of the times that Jesus uses banquets or feasts in his parables. Think about the fact that in John's gospel, Jesus' first miracle is within that wedding celebration, a meal within a home. There's Levi who does this immediately having received Christ, or Zacchaeus who invites Jesus and others over for dinner, Mary and Martha who have Jesus in their home and prepare a meal, the Last Supper itself, Jesus' final act with those disciples before his arrest and suffering. There is this continual practice in Scripture of people sharing meals together, of opening their homes, churches meeting in those homes often in the first century, by coming together for a meal, inviting people into their life, and as a part of that invitation, introducing people to Jesus. That's a pretty practical takeaway that I think is appropriate from this passage. Part of what it means to follow Christ is you begin to use your home and your possessions and your time for the good of others, to open your life and to share those things with others that they might know Christ better too. Well, pretty quickly, this celebration of them together, these tax collectors meeting Jesus in this dinner home, begins to cause controversy around Capernaum. The Pharisees show up, and they're quickly offended by the fact that Jesus would recline at a table with these Roman tax collectors and sinners. Now, most of the time, this scene gets imagined or presented as the self-righteous Pharisees who don't think Jesus should be hanging out with sinners or those who side with Rome. The image we get is of these stuffy, angry, mean, grumpy Pharisees. But I think there's actually something more going on here, perhaps something more relatable, something that we too could learn a lesson from. We need to remind ourselves a little bit about these Pharisees, the way that they saw the world and the way they were thinking about Jesus and this growing ministry, the crowds that were surrounding him. The Pharisees most likely get their name from the Hebrew word that means to separate. They are those who have separated themselves, is what the word Pharisee means. 
They are those who have separated themselves from Rome, from the corruption taking place in Jerusalem and the temple. And during the first century, most of the priesthood, those the Sadducees who ruled over the religious practices of Israel, had also become accomplices to Rome, profiting off of Rome's peace that they provided. And so it is these Pharisees, most of them non-priests, became a kind of grassroots religious movement of lay people who sought to take the law extremely seriously so that they might separate themselves from the corrupting influence of Rome. And they did this for good reason. These Pharisees looked at the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and one of the conclusions they drew from the history of God's people was that when God's people too closely aligned themselves or collaborated with foreign powers or foreign kingdoms, it usually led to their own corruption, their own idolatry, inevitably God's judgment through exile. That when the people of God aligned themselves with the gods and power and wealth of other kingdoms, eventually God would bring judgment upon his people and drive them out of the land. So, looking at this Old Testament history, the Pharisees saw that same corrupting influence of Rome having an effect on Israel's worship and God's people. And they decided to separate themselves to regain Israel's full independence, to drive out that force of Rome, the Pharisees concluded to receive that blessing from God, they needed to purify Israel's worship, purify their lives and actions, and ensure absolute faithful obedience to the law, which they believed would guarantee the removal of Rome and the full independence of God's people within the land. If you remember when we preached through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah together a while back, we actually saw this beginning to form, even in those days. Remember how, coming back to the land and rebuilding the temple, they began to institute rules that would protect the law. They began to practice things that actually went further than the law to ensure that they would protect that blessing, that land they had received. The Pharisees began to develop this idea of oral tradition, that not only should they keep the Mosaic law that was written in the Bible, but that there was this great tradition of oral teaching that had been passed down that carried the same weight as the law. The idea that developed was building what is called a fence around the law, that if we could protect the written laws of Moses by this fence of oral rules that kept us from getting too close to violating the law, then we could be sure of our faithful obedience to the law. So you get places in the Old Testament where there are laws like priests should wash their hands before they eat of sacrifices. But the Pharisees would say, lest we protect this or any priest should break this, we will ask that all Israelites everywhere wash their hands before any meal. If we keep this tradition, then we could be sure never to break the specific Mosaic law. And so with time, the Pharisees built up this great set of oral rules, which they held to have the same weight as the law itself. The Pharisees looked at people like Levi, this tax collector, and they didn't just hate him because he took taxes. They saw people like Levi, who were working within the power of Rome, as compromising what God wanted to do in that land. As long as there were people like Levi working with Rome, God would never give his full blessing to Israel. What the Pharisees wanted was for every Israelite in the land to come back to perfect obedience, to reject the influence of Rome, and only then would God's blessing be bestowed upon them. What they were looking for in a Messiah to come 
was once their obedience was perfect, the Messiah would ride in and push Rome out and reestablish the rule and reign of their righteousness, their goodness, their blessing within the land. So what are these Pharisees to make of Jesus, who shows up and instead of driving people like Levi out, the Romans with him, he sits down at the table, reclines, and begins eating with people like Levi, who they imagine are the very ones keeping God's blessing from being bestowed on Israel. What motivated the Pharisees was a desire for God's blessing. But the mistake they made was that they thought that blessing came through their own perfect obedience, through the rules that they kept. These rules, though, actually began to cut the nation apart, to divide the people from one another. They looked for people to blame, why God's blessing was missing, and eventually this way of perceiving God's blessing blinded the Pharisees to the fact that God's blessing in Jesus was literally standing before them healing and doing miracles. But because he was not the kind of Messiah they expected, increasingly they turned against him. What their traditions mistakenly did was make them constantly self-interested, constantly measuring and gauging themselves against every other person, looking to justify themselves by blaming others for what Israel, in their view, failed to receive. Here's what's so interesting about the way these Pharisees are beginning to appear in Luke's gospel. The Pharisees make the exact same basic mistake that Nazareth and Capernaum and the crowds have been making as well. They all want a Messiah who will affirm them, who will give them what they are looking for. They want a Messiah to come and recognize that they are the pure ones. They are the holy ones. They are the righteous ones. They want a Messiah that will validate them as the chosen people. And just like Nazareth wanted blessings because they were from the hometown of Jesus, and just like the crowds demanded more and more miracles, The Pharisees demand that Jesus meet their expectations, fulfill their desires, and recognize them for their holiness. Isn't it interesting that all of these people, by such different motivations, end up making the same basic mistake? They look at Jesus and immediately begin to ask, what this will mean for me? What will I get out of this? Will Jesus finally do the thing I've been waiting for? And because of it, the Pharisees, meant to be leaders and teachers in Israel, actually began violating that call. There's a fascinating prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that I think speaks well to this mistake that the Pharisees were making. Ezekiel said, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Ezekiel is not talking about the actual shepherds in the field in Israel. He's talking about those who have been called to shepherd Israel, the leaders and the teachers, those who would teach the law, the scribes and people like the Pharisees. Thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harassment you have ruled them. So they have scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, 
They have wandered off all over the mountain and to every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. There's two things that happen in Ezekiel's prophecy. These shepherds, these teachers of Israel, have number one, begun to divide the flock instead of unite it. They haven't sought out those who were missing. They haven't gone and healed those who were broken. Notice these are the very things Jesus is doing in these opening stories of Luke. But perhaps more important to Ezekiel's prophecy is the motivation. Why have they neglected this work? Because everything has been about them. They have profited. They have gotten fat. They have been lazy and taken care of their own needs. In these early stories of Luke's gospel, there is a constant danger that we make everything that God is doing about ourselves. We make our obedience about differentiating ourselves from the people around us. We make our obedience about getting what we want from God. We set ourselves up as a judge to decide what God would and wouldn't do. We imagine that we are at the center of every story we read and every word we receive. But to the Pharisees, Jesus answered, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. A couple things to notice about Jesus's response. First, notice that Jesus does not come to hang out with sinners. That's not what this passage is saying at all. Often we have this idea that Jesus is friends of sinners. True, he's more than willing to recline at the table to eat with them. But notice it doesn't say Jesus has simply come to affirm the unrighteous. Neither does it say he comes because he enjoys hanging out with sinners. What it tells us is that Jesus has come to call those who are sinners to repentance. He's come to call those who would listen to follow him. He does not dine with tax collectors to tell them that they're actually pretty good people, just misunderstood by the Pharisees. He reclines with them so that he might offer them what he offered Levi. Leave all that you possess. Repent. And follow me, he calls sinners to repentance. The real issue of this story is not that Jesus would associate himself with sinners and tax collectors. That's the thin veneer of the Pharisees' complaint. What they say, but there's much more going on beneath the surface. What is really at stake is that same old question that's been emerging in Luke's gospel. Do we really want Jesus Or do we just want Jesus to affirm us and give us what we want? Do we press into Jesus like the crowds to get something we think we need? Or like Peter who falls on his face before Jesus and says, I'm unworthy. Or Levi who abandons his tax booth and invites all of his friends to meet this Jesus. Do we really hear Jesus' call as the call to reorient our entire lives? to abandon all of our previous pursuits? Do I want what Jesus has come to do? Or do I just want Jesus to do what I want him to do? Do I decide what is right and wrong of Jesus? Or does he get to challenge me, to ask me to lay down things, to repent, to change? So far in Luke's gospel, this is the mark of a true follower of Jesus their willingness to repent, to turn. A true disciple walks away from what they possess and follows Jesus. You notice by Jesus' calling, not knowing where it will lead or what will come of it or what will cost. 
but hearing nothing more than follow me, they entrust everything to him. A true disciple drops their preconceived ideas of what should happen, the way their life should go, and instead they invest their future and all of the world with it into the hands of this new king. He is the true shepherd, the one that Isaiah had chastised the teachers for not being, the one who comes and selflessly gives of himself to bind the broken and to mend those who are ill, to search out those who are lost, and to bring those sheep back into following him. Because here's the thing about Jesus that becomes clear the more we get into this gospel. While everyone in these stories keeps seeming to be motivated by self-interest, what they want, what they expect, what they deserve, Jesus offers us a model of real selflessness. For he didn't call his disciples to anything that he himself was not willing to do. He followed the word of his father in obedience into this world. He abandoned all of the riches and possessions of heaven behind him. He stepped into the rejection, the persecution of this world. And as we know and will read in this gospel to come, he will suffer all things, die, and do it for us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. This principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death to your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. How much of your energy goes to saving your life? How much of your energy goes to protecting yourself? How much of your faith is about what you want God to do and expect from him? How much of your possessions are spent accumulating more of what you want? How much of your time is indulged in the way that you would have it? How much of your life is marked by this call to walk away, to repent, and to follow him for all things in your life to belong to Christ? What Jesus is showing us in these early chapters of Luke's gospel is just how much self-interest is actually in our hearts. Whether you're the hometown friends and family of Nazareth, the impressed crowds pressing and mobbing Jesus in Capernaum, the Pharisees, a long and old tradition of careful obedience, beneath all of it, that same human heart plagued by what I want and what I expect and what I'm looking for. That to truly understand and receive Jesus, the first step in hearing his call is dying to that self-interest, walking away from the self that you've been working on and accumulating, and choosing instead to answer that call, to follow him into whatever may come. 
I'm going to close this in prayer this morning and we'll spend some time responding in worship. But I wonder if we might each, this new year just ahead of us, make that proclamation to Christ again. All that I have is yours and all that I possess is yours. Whatever you call me to in the days ahead, this year before us, let me be counted among those few who will answer faithfully and give sacrificially because we are those who have seen what Christ has done and offered us. Heavenly Father, we recognize by these stories and the way that Luke's gospel is beginning to accumulate just how much of that self-interest is present in our own hearts. God, if we were honest, we know what it is to live constantly obsessed with our own desires and our own wishes and our own plans and our own expectations, to be overwhelmed by our own fears and our uncertainties. And God, just how much of that self-interest can pollute the way that we come before you and the way that we follow you. God, we see like the Pharisees even, how much our own hearts can be about what we've done, what we expect, what we think is due. So we come before you, God, this morning, wanting to be like those disciples who you first called Peter and here Levi, who are willing to offer you all that we possess. God, whatever job we may find ourselves in, whatever family context or situation, whatever place and neighborhood, whatever possessions, great or small, God, whatever sickness or health, wherever we find ourselves this morning, we just offer it to you again. We hear your call again. And we choose again to confirm our willingness to follow you and to entrust you with all things. So we pray you would go before us and that God, we would find in this sacrifice of the things of this world more of you. That as we possess more of you, that God, you would fill our hearts with a greater joy than all of our own pursuits could offer. That we would find in you a greater peace than we could construct on our own that we would find in you a greater security than any wealth or possession or health could offer us in this life. That God, by your spirit, our hearts would overflow with gratitude for what you have given, life and life eternal and hope of salvation. And that God, our hearts would be so filled with those things that we would die to the things of this world, our own dreams and desires. And we would instead find more of you, more of your desires leading us and guiding us into still better things to come. So we worship you again this morning, marking that commitment, our lives offered to you and all of our possessions with them, and trusting that in this worship, you would fill our hearts again by your spirit with the good news of your gospel, with the worship and the gratitude that comes by it, that we might worship you this final day of this year with anticipation of all that lay before us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. join me in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we round out this year, we just pray you would fill our hearts again with that joy of all that you've given us. As we think back over what you've done this past year, Lord, fill us again with that sense of gratitude for your faithfulness, for your goodness, and your steadfastness, God. Even in times of trouble or challenge, the way that you show yourself present with us in all things, God with us, We pray that we would leave here today just with hearts full of that gratitude. God, as we anticipate the year ahead, 
As we turn the calendar, we pray that by your spirit, you would renew in our hearts that commitment to be your followers. That we would commit to you again all of our lives and all of our possessions, all of our desires and hopes and uncertainties. And that you would, as you have promised to be that shepherd before us, that you would go before us into the days ahead. God, for those in our congregation battling sickness, we just pray you would lead us. For those facing uncertainties and difficulties and challenges, go before us. God, for those looking to dates on the calendar in the year ahead of celebrations, God, be present with us in them. And teach our hearts to follow you again. Fill our hearts with the sense that all that awaits us, God, not only in the days ahead, but in all of eternity, the hope that we have in you, the peace that we have in you, the security that we have in you. God, as the shepherd, lead us and go before us into the days ahead and that we might go with you into them, worshiping you, hearts grateful for all that we've received and lives dedicated to being your followers, to answering your call, disciples and followers of you. Jesus, we're grateful for all that you've done and all that lays before us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, quick before we go announcement and then uh, we'll close with a blessing uh, we have been trying to do our lecture nights the first Thursday of every month although it seems like half of these we've moved to the second Thursday of the month which we're doing in January as well so next year when we do these bookmarks I just won't put the dates on them you'll have to wait so uh, they're basically half invalidated so it's uh, Thursday January 4th is our day we'll actually be moving that to the next Thursday we have a lecture coming up on the Dead Sea Scrolls which I'm really looking forward to it's one of my favorite topics so uh, again I'll have that in the email. It'll be on the website, but that won't be this Thursday. It'll be the following Thursday. So thanks for your help with that. I leave you as we've been doing our tradition. Uh, starting next week, I'll probably have a new blessing to close out services. I like to pick one for the year, but this whole year of 2023, we've been reading those final words of the book of Hebrews. And so for the last time this year, let me offer you this blessing from Hebrew. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, How fitting what we talked about today. The great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen and amen. It's good to worship with you again this Sunday morning.